And we'll begin at verse 10 and just read through verse 17. Verse 10 through verse 17. Paul writes, To the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest I, not the Lord, say, If any brother has a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk, and so I ordain in all the churches. Let's once again ask for God's help in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank and bless and praise you that you have not left us to ourselves. You have not left your disciples there on the sea being tossed about. You came to them, you calmed the storm. You've not left us to traverse this life without the guidance of your word. So we pray that you would open it to us, give us faith to embrace it and to walk by its precepts and its instruction, to receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save our souls. Heavenly Father, to that end we pray for your presence, your Holy Spirit, to aid us in this hour, to give us ears to hear, to give me a mouth to speak, to give us hearts to receive, Lord God, to receive it in, into good ground, that it might bear fruit thirty, sixty, a hundredfold, and not be plucked up, and not be crushed out by the cares of this world and of this life. Come watch over your word and fulfill its purpose to your glory and your people. For we pray in the blessed name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. 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 Well, I've said a few times, how is it that we're here in 1 Corinthians of all places? 1 Corinthians of all places. We're in a Reformed church after all. Can't we, can't we unfurl those banners? Can't we unfurl the banners of faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone, to the glory of God alone? Can't we be unfurling those banners from the pulpit week after week so that we can march under those? Can't we aspire to higher ideals than to get bogged down in the details of the things that Paul is writing about in 1 Corinthians? Well, the last of those banners is what? By the scriptures alone. The scriptures alone are the authoritative word of God. The counsel of the whole counsel of God, brethren, is a rather broad volume. And as the man asked, how do you eat an elephant? Well, the answer is one bite at a time. 
And so we progress through the scriptures, one step at a time, one bite at a time, to get through the whole. But as we begin this morning, something of a refreshing introduction, just a 40,000 foot overlook. Where are we at in the history of redemption? Where are we at in the history of redemption as we come to these things? The first four books of our New Testament give us the gospel records that record the teaching, life, and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. The teaching, life, and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. The teachings of Christ must never be separated from the life of Christ. His sinless, spotless, exemplary life give credence, conviction, and force to his teaching. More importantly, his perfect life, miracles, and ministry give testimony and proof of his being the very Son of God. Of his being very the very Son of God, so that all that he says, all that he teaches, all that he came to accomplish in his mission, in his ministry here on earth, bear the marks of God's approval and of accomplishing that mission. Therefore, his teaching is not merely praiseworthy in and of itself. I heard a congressman uh, this week in Congress quote the parable of the unforgiving servant, which we have heard from our pulpit here recently, of the unforgiving servant. And he said, well, it's from the Bible, but he didn't give all the credit and credence to Christ himself and what the significance was. He made a good application of it, I thought, but it was somewhat out of context. But he regarded it as a good story that helped to illustrate a point he was making in the halls of Congress. But when we come to the teachings of Christ, they're not merely praiseworthy in and of themselves. As those who were sent to arrest him said, never man spake as this man, we could say that. But as Peter confessed, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's what it should bring us to own and confess when we hear the teachings of Christ. Thus, all that he said bears the stamp, the imprimatur of divine authority. These are the words and the very word of God. So Paul, as we saw last time, referring to Jesus' teaching as commands. But I get ahead of myself. See also the wisdom of God on display in the life and ministry of Christ. Knowing his life and mission here would be short, he spends much of his time, even most of those three and a half years, doing what? Training the twelve. Training those twelve disciples. For what yet they fully did not understand or know, but they were being trained all the while. When he departed and returned to heaven, he commissioned the eleven remaining faithful disciples to make disciples, to go out and make disciples, and to teach those disciples what? To observe all things that Jesus had commanded them. A good part of the work of the ministry is doing that, teaching the disciples of Christ to observe all the things that Jesus taught. Now those apostles and prophets in turn become, as we read in Ephesians chapter 2, they become the foundation of the church. 
of which edifice Jesus Christ himself is the chief cornerstone. But upon that are built the prophets and apostles, and upon them the pastors and teachers. Paul, in turn, was an apostle, born out of due time, who by the grace of God was what he was, and he could say, I labored more abundantly than they all. I labored more abundantly than they all. He went farther and wider, he taught more, he wrote considerably more. He also was commissioned to make and teach Christ's disciples. Yes, Christ's disciples. Paul was not crucified for them. He wasn't commissioned to make his own disciples. The Corinthians got that all wrong when they said, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas. Christ sent Paul to make disciples, not disciples of himself, but disciples of Christ, to teach all things that Christ had taught. They were not baptized in the name of Paul. Paul had come in this course to Corinth, preached the gospel, gathered a church together, and taught them what Christ had taught him, and what in turn the Holy Spirit had taught the Apostle Paul, so that his teaching continues in his letters. The teaching of Christ through the Apostles continues through the writings of the Apostles and other New Testament writers. That's why we are here. That's why we are here in 1 Corinthians 7. Are you a disciple of Christ? Then discipleship training continues. Discipleship training continues and will continue all our days. We have not yet reached perfection, nor will we this side of glory. We have not yet ceased from striving against sin, striving to continue in the narrow way that leads to life. And so we need continuous instruction from his word. Pilgrims to the celestial city, while we are to count the cost before starting out on that pilgrimage, we cannot, indeed we did not, we yet do not know what the full cost is for us individually of being a disciple of Christ. We may have to cross some rivers, we might have to be out on some stormy seas that we're yet not anticipating, that we're as yet not prepared for, yet if we're his disciples, Will he not watch over his own? Will he not care for his own? Will he not be there with them in the boat? Will he not be with us through all the storms of life? Vance Havner once wrote, We have put the demand of discipleship in fine print for fear we would scare away prospects. Mm. Too often, that's our approach. We don't want to talk about the demands of discipleship taking up our cross daily and following Christ, having to forsake all else, to be loyal to Christ alone, to devote ourselves to him alone. We're not prepared to do that. We don't want to preach that from the pulpit. We're going to scare people away. They'll never come back if they think there's this kind of demand on being a follower of Jesus Christ. And yet there is. And those demands unfold as we grow in grace and understanding. And knowledge. Well, that brings us to the two headings I want to consider with you this morning. 
in this passage of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. First, a very short review of what we saw last time from 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 11, and then an exposition of 1 Corinthians 7, 12 through 17. First of all, a brief review of 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 11. For sake of time, I won't read that again. But you, I hope, will remember some of that. Paul is here responding in writing to some of the questions that had been written to him. The Corinthians had these conundrums that they were facing, and they wanted answers and guidance. And so they wrote to Paul several things. And Paul begins to answer those things. And as we said, we don't know how much of the rest of 1 Corinthians might be taken up in addressing those things, but certainly the things here in chapter 7, Paul is responding to what they wrote to him about. Secondly, we saw that it is an honorable, noble, and, good, and a good thing not to touch a woman. Not to touch a woman. Remember, Paul says, it is a good thing not to touch a woman. What does he mean? Not to enter into that intimate relationship that comes in marriage not to enter into that. It's a good, noble, and honorable thing to remain single. But he does not say that's the norm, that that's the normative co uh, course, for the, even for the Christian. It's not the norm. It's good and honorable. And perhaps the reason Paul is addressing it in the way that he did, because even already in the church at Corinth, there had grown an asceticism. Perhaps it was an extreme reaction to the licentiousness there in Corinth that they were famous for, their perverse lifestyles. So the people come to Christ, their reaction, you know how it is, we swing the pendulum all the other way. It must be a bad thing to have any kind of sexual relationships, therefore marriage is bad, we're gonna skew that all together. Paul says, no, yes, it's noble and honorable if you wanna remain single, but it's not normative. So Paul goes on to give instruction regarding how to conduct yourself in marriage. Marriage is, among other things, an antidote to sexual immorality. An antidote to sexual immorality. Paul says, let every man have his own wife and every woman have her own husband. For in that marriage relationship, there is a physical duty to one another. Marriage is coupled with a mutual submission one to another. Okay? Your body is not your own, it belongs to your spouse. And so you have this mutual relationship, one to another, to submit to one another in that area. The husband is still the head of the wife, but he doesn't dictate in those areas in that sense, in that way. There's a mutual submissiveness and agreement that come together in that relationship. And Paul says there may be seasons where you want to set yourselves apart and give yourselves to prayer and to fasting, then do that. But come together again and don't defraud each other and don't neglect your duty lest Satan tempt you for your lack of self-control. Fifth, Paul himself's preference is that they would remain single as himself. He likes that lifestyle. He thinks it's good and honorable and encourage them so to do. But he says, each has his proper gift from God. In fact, we went back to read about how Jesus says, not all men can receive this saying of being a eunuch for the kingdom of God. 
They're rather the exception than the rule. But some are given that gift. And then in verses 10 and 11, Paul summarized the Lord's commands regarding divorce and remarriage in this way. He said, the wife should not leave her husband. The husband should not put away his wife. If she should depart, she must, one, remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. That's a summary of what we saw last time. From this passage, we supported that by a number of other Old and New Testament texts. And I drew the inference and conviction and conclusion that the plain meaning is that marriage is to be permanent until death. It is to be permanent until death, and not even adultery inviolates the marital covenant. Not even adultery violates and inviolates the marital covenant. Now, I acknowledge this has been a controversial subject throughout the history of the church, and though there is a growing number of biblical scholars who have come to the same conviction, it is in no way the predominant view. The predominant Protestant, and even we would say Reformed view, is that there's two exceptions. There's two exceptions for allowing divorce. One would be adultery, and the other would be total abandonment. We saw that when we looked at the Westminster Confession briefly. So I won't go into that anymore at this point. If you missed that, go back and listen to the other sermon. So good and godly men have disagreed over this. I readily acknowledge that. But I must state and teach what I believe the Bible plainly teaches on this matter. Now I know there are also a number of questions that come up regarding this subject. Because what about? What about this situation? What about that situation? If we take those convictions and work them out in life, there's going to be all kinds of problems. Yes, there are going to be all kinds of problems. But even without those strictures, there's all kinds of problems, isn't there, in remaining faithful in marriage and remaining faithful in those things. And if we follow out the principles, I believe all those questions can be answered. Not easily. The answers might be easy, but the living out of those answers can be long and hard and difficult. But for today, we will press on as Paul answers another question or questions that emerge in the church at Corinth, bringing us to the exposition of 1 Corinthians 7, 12 through 17, under the following three headings. First of all, Paul's authority. Paul's authority. Secondly, the question or conundrum. This next question or conundrum that Paul is addressing. And then thirdly, the four S's the four S's as I'm calling them, separation, sanctification, salvation, and submission. The four S's that Paul takes up. First of all, Paul's authority. Long before any effort to get Trump, there has been an element who have always sought to undermine Paul and Paul's authority as an apostle. They said, you weren't there. You weren't there with the other 11 back when Jesus was here on the earth. So how are you legitimately an apostle? Now Paul addresses at various times in Galatians and 2 Corinthians and other places that God called him out of due time. God called him out of due time and thrust him into that ministry. 
and that he indeed was called to be an apostle. And as he asserted, Paul was not uh, simply an apostle, but one who labored more abundantly than they all. Paul's authority as an apostle is here asserted. Paul was also inspired by the Spirit in all his writings, not merely giving his opinion. Sometimes 1 Corinthians 7 can be a place where people say, well, see, Paul's just saying, I give my opinion. I'm just giving my thought, my expression, my opinion. No, he's saying, the Lord didn't teach this explicitly, and I'm giving and adding to what he said. Let me underscore that. Look with me. You're there in 1 Corinthians 7, what he says, verse 17. But as God is distributing each one, as the Lord called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches. Paul says, God has given me as an apostle the authority to appoint, ordain these things in all the churches. He has that authority. Skip down to verse 25. He says, now concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give my judgment as one who the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. Now he's not just saying, I'm a trustworthy guy. He's saying God has put it into my hands to flesh out more of this that Jesus had not explicitly taught upon. Look with me at verse 40 of the same chapter. But she is happier if she remains as she is, according to my judgment. And I think I also have the Spirit of God. Now Paul, perhaps, is expressing himself a little modestly. It's not just thinking I have the Spirit of God, but having the heartfelt, known conviction that this has come from the Spirit of God, who has guided me in this conclusion. And then skip with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. There you'll remember Paul is addressing all the issues of spiritual gifts and their functions in the church. And he comes down to verse uh, 37. Well, we'll back up to verse 36. He says, Or did the word of God come originally from you? Or was it to you only that it, would, that it reached? Okay, he's kind of chiding the Corinthians. Because they, they would look at Paul and say, well, well, we have the word of God as well. We have the inspiration of the Spirit as well. So Paul goes on. If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. Paul is not just making offhanded, off-the-cuff suggestions for the church in Corinth. He has been entrusted as an authoritative apostle to write the commandments of the Lord in these areas. Then he says, but if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. So Paul's authority is firmly established. He is not just uh, giving his opinion and preaching off the cuff when he says, the Lord hasn't said this, I'm now telling you these things. That brings us in the second place to the question or conundrum he goes on to answer. Perhaps the first question he began to answer in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 was about marriage and divorce, was about relations in, uh, in marriage and how that was to be carried out. But here the question seems to be this. 
What if you're in a mixed marriage? By mixed, I mean a believer with an unbeliever. How are we going to sort that out? The scriptures that each elsewhere teach, right? And Paul goes on in this chapter to say, if you're going to marry, marry only in the Lord. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. You don't want to get into a marriage relationship with an unbeliever. Amen? That is true. So some of them are drawing the conclusion, therefore I should get out of this. I should weasel my way out of this any way I can. Shouldn't I find a way, Paul, to get out of this? Paul, what, how do we answer this conundrum, this difficulty? I'm living with a rank pagan who's worshiping other gods. How can I continue in that relationship? How can that be carried on? It's a difficult question, but Paul begins to address himself to it. So turn and look with me at verse 12. He says, but to the rest I, not the Lord, say. Again, Paul is not asserting here simply his opinion, but he's adding to what the Lord already laid down in principle. He goes on to address now this question under these four S's. Separation, sanctification, salvation, and submission. Separation, first of all. But I, to the rest I say, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. Let him not put her away. Okay, so there's the first thing. She's willing to live with him. Okay? She's willing to live with him even though she has not come to faith. She is not a Christian. She knows that he is. And she knows that to some degree he's going to be wanting to live out his Christian faith. But she's willing to live with him. What's the answer? Do not separate. Do not separate. Do not divorce her. Let him not divorce her. Let him not put her away. Then he goes on. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. Same thing on the other side of the fence. If the wife is the believer and the husband is the unbeliever, and she is willing to dwell, he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. That's not a reason for a divorce. It's going to be difficult, no doubt. There's going to be trouble in the marriage, no doubt. And whenever possible, let's not enter into those kind of unions. But what most likely happened here, that one or the other came to Christ when Paul came preaching the gospel. But the spouse as yet had not come along. The spouse as yet had not come along. So here's the difficult relationship. Dwelling together with a pagan. Dwelling together with an unbeliever. How do we live those things out together? It can be very difficult. There was a dear woman in the church at Ladysmith, and she came uh, to the services every morning. They had a similar structure as we do. They would have a morning service. They would have a fellowship meal, and then uh, immediately after, a little bit after, there would be a second service. Well, she would come uh, to the morning service, and there's nobody I've ever known who said amen more than that woman. And she would uh, enter into the, the worship and the fellowship, receive the word of God, but she would leave right after because her husband was an unbeliever and wouldn't come with her. And she felt it her duty to get home and to prepare him his afternoon meal, his lunch. I think that's one of the godly ways we work out these difficulties. 
one of the godly ways we work out these difficulties. When we get into the questions about divorce and remarriage, perhaps the foremost authority that is cited is John Murray and John Murray's book, Divorce. Some of you may be familiar with it. Well, John Murray in his book, Divorce, would hold to the traditional Protestant view that adultery and abandonment are just causes for uh, a divorce or breakup of a marriage. But when he writes and comments on these particular verses, he says, the, un the, the believers should do all that they can to hold that marriage together, to do all that they can without uh, becoming immorally impure, without compromising their faith in some way. But to the degree that they are able, they should do all that they can to hold that together. And I believe that is exactly what Paul is counseling here, that they should hold that together. Now, verse 15 becomes uh, the kind of the crux question. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Now wait, Paul, didn't you say not to divorce? But who's initiating the divorce? The Christian should never be initiating the divorce. Even Murray says that. The Christian should never be initiating the divorce. However, there should be a level of tolerance or cooperation. If things get to the point where the unbeliever says, I'm out of here, the Christian is not obliged to try to hold it together no matter what. God has called us to peace. Now, the, the conclusion from that, however, I do not believe is that they're free to remarry because then you still have to go back to the principles of verse 10 and 11. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage. It's an interesting word there. It's, it's not the word usually used about marital uh, bonds and uh, holding together. It's, it's a looser word. But nevertheless, the idea in context is the same. But many interpreters make much of this word bondage and say they're not under bondage. They're no longer under obligation. That means they're free to go ahead and marry somebody else. Their unbelieving spouse has departed. Praise the Lord. Now I'm free to marry someone else. I don't think that's the right conclusion to make from that. They're free from bed and board, as Murray would describe it. That is to say, to carry on the marital relationship of living together and all the rest. But they're not free, necessarily, to marry another. That makes a difficult case for a person, doesn't it? Brethren, let's be aware. We probably all have friends uh, or have known friends who are in that situation. That is part of the cost of discipleship. And it's a heavy cross to bear and it's a heavy burden to bear, but this too shall pass. This too shall pass this season of life. Well, that brings us in the fourth place, or the second place under the four S's to sanctification. To sanctification. Look what he goes on to say. Um, uh, jump, jumping back to uh, verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now are they holy? Oh, a lot of ink has been spilled over this one verse. 
But let's just look at it plainly. In what sense is the unbelieving spouse sanctified by the believing spouse? Are they somehow in the covenant? Somehow in the, kept, the, the uh, kingdom of God because their spouse is a believer? I don't believe that's what it's teaching. We read over when Paul says, uh, all foods are to be received for it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. Okay, the, word, the, the food is set apart to the glory of God when we pray and give thanks for it. So also our wives, our husbands, unbelieving spouses, are set apart in a special way in as much as we can be the channel of grace to them. They're in a special place because they are our spouse. And in that sense, in the providence of God, they're set apart. They're set apart to be in a special place to receive the word of God. We read Paul writes in Romans about what advantage does the Jew have? Much every way, he says, chiefly, primarily because of this, because they were given the oracles of God. They have the word of God. They're set apart to be recipients of the word of God. They're set apart in that sense. They're not all saved by the grace of God, but they're in a special place to receive the word of God. So it is with the unbelieving spouse. They're in a special place to receive the blessings that you receive through you to them, and especially through the ministry of the word. As Peter writes uh, about the wife who's to win the husband, right? Without a word. Without a word, just so live, so godly before him. Not to nag him to come to church with her week in and week out, to do all those things, to try to get him dragging, kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God, but know of a surety that God will use you, your godly example, and wherever your words drop and the seed of the word of God is sown to bear fruit in them, perhaps, for their good. So we see the sanctification, and then he goes on. He says, this is what helps to reinforce that. Else were your children unclean. But now are they holy? Now that's where there's a lot of discussion and debate. But I believe it's much the same thing, the exact same thing. That because God, by his grace, has called you into his kingdom, made you a believer, through you, your children are, as it were, set apart to be receivers of the word of God, which you're teaching them. The good and godly influence you can have on them. That's what makes them holy. They're not holy because there's internal holiness produced by the Holy Spirit indwelling them by the grace of God, but they are set apart to be in a special place to receive the truth of the Word of God. They're not members of the covenant because you're a member of the covenant, as some of our Pado baptist brethren would teach us. I wish it were true. <laughs> I wish it were true, but I don't believe that's what it's teaching. It is simply teaching they are set apart in a special place to be receivers of the word of God. We read often, uh, don't we, about things being set apart for holy use. There's the holy mountain. Well, the holy mountain, there's nothing internally holy about the mountain. There's the holy vessels of the temple. There's nothing uh, intrinsically uh, holy about the vessels that they would use in the temple, but they're set apart. They're set apart for holy use. Our children are set apart in that sense to be recipients as we teach them and bring them up in the fear 
and admonition of the Lord. So we see what Paul writes here about separation. Do not separate, but if the uh, unbeliever departs, let him depart. You can cooperate in that sense with him in their departure. But here, notice, he says, but think about this. Think about this. Here's a reason to try to hold on a little longer, to try to hold on a little longer, to bear out a little more faithfully, because you are a means of their sanctification. And then he goes on and says, and perhaps even of their salvation, even of their salvation. Look with me at verse 16. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, those are strong words. Are we able to save each other? That would be nice, wouldn't it? It'd be a lot easier, a lot quicker, right? If we were able to save each other. Paul uses this language elsewhere some. He says, that I may save some. What is he saying? He's saying, through the gospel. Through the gospel preached, proclaimed. Through the gospel, witness and testify to in my life. and can be saved. Here's another motivation for you to stay with your unbelieving uh, spouse. It might be the means of their salvation. How often has it happened? One comes to Christ, and it could be a couple years later, maybe many years later, before the other spouse ever comes to faith in Christ themselves. What do you know, O wife? What do you know, O man? You might be the means of the salvation of your spouse. So that leads us fourthly to submission. Submission. Well, where does that come in in our text? Look with me at the 17th verse. The 17th verse is kind of a transition verse. He's transitioning from this discussion about uh, these mixed marriages into more providential things, broadly speaking, in life, and what our callings are in life, more broadly speaking. But this is the linchpin of that, he says. But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches. Okay? So then he goes on to a number of categories. And we'll, Lord willing, get into this later. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let them not become uncircumcised. If you happen to be a Jew, and God calls you by the grace of God in Christ, don't become a Gentile. That's what, that's what Paul had to rebuke Peter for. Now you're living like a Gentile. No. You're a Jew called stay. You're not going to change your skin. You're not going to change your heritage. You are who you are by the grace of God in the providence of God. There stay in that calling. So also taking that principle back up to what he has dealt with before, if you're in a relationship with an unbelieving spouse, in the providence of God, abide in that relationship when at, at all possible. When at all possible. As God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. So let him walk. Submit yourself to the providence of God in this area. He goes on to talk about are you called being a slave? Verse 21. Do not be concerned about it. What's he mean? Don't be fretful and anxious about it. Don't say, now I'm, I'm a free man in Christ. I have to depart from my master. I can no longer be a slave. But rather, 
serve the Lord as a slave. For the Lord's, for the a man's slave is the Lord's free man. You can serve the Lord freely. But he says, if you can be made free, use it rather. If there becomes in those times a lawful means of being free by all means, take advantage of that. But if you're called being a slave, be a slave to the glory of God. If you're called in a marital relationship with an unbeliever, live in that to the glory of God as best you can, making any accession that you can within reason, without violating your conscience, without compromising your faith. If you can do that, stay in that relationship. And more than likely, your spouse will probably be pleased to dwell with you. So the last thing we see in it says is submission. Submission to the providence of God, which may be very, very hard, as we already talked about. Very hard when you know friends who live in those situations. Not just one day, not just one year, year upon year upon year upon year, living with an unbeliever, all the things that they have to put up with, the things that are like fingers on a chalkboard in their heart, in their life, that they're grieved over. Okay, All their time, they're like Lot in Sodom. And their soul is vexed, living with an unbeliever. That's the cross, though, that providentially you're called to there, submit uh, to God in that area. Well, in conclusion, what applications? All of this seems to be application in some ways. But why all the fuss about this? Why all the fuss about this marriage and divorce and all these questions? Why all the fuss? Why is this issue so important? Why is this issue so important? Vance Habner, again, I'll quote him. He says, marriage has been reduced to a joke and is no longer a lifetime contract. We have cheap marriages and cheap homes because there are too many cheap people who lack the integrity to keep any contract. That's part of the reason, okay? There's a lack of integrity, and we display a lack of integrity if the Christian professing church is reflecting the divorce rate common to the general culture. What a shame it is on us. What a shame it is, but that's not the great issue. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. It's not simply the shame that we bring on ourselves, but on our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What a mockery we make of what he has called us to. Familiar passages, but one to be heard again. Ephesians chapter 5, we'll jump in at verse uh, 28. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. Now we hear that language several times. Just as the Lord does the church. Okay? Okay? The husband uh, is to love their wife as their own body. They care for their own body. Christ loves his bride. Christ loves his bride far greater and nourishes and cares for her is faithful to her in every detail 
Though she proves unfaithful so many times, though she turn from him, though she complain about his good kindness and providence, though she is never there, worshiping with the heart and soul that he's looking for out of his people, he cares for her, nourishes her, cares for her. He goes on. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and they too shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. We don't understand the full extent of this mystery, do we? But think about it. We serve a sovereign God. Why did he create marriage in part? To be a display of his relationship of himself to this church, his bride that he's come to redeem. Now, wait a minute, that came later though, didn't it? <laughs> Not in God's mind. He knows the end from the beginning. He planned that way ahead of time to put it on display that every marriage should be a reflection of that to his glory. And when it is not, it's a shame upon our Lord. It's a shame upon him. We are either proving ourselves unfaithful brides or unfaithful bridegrooms when we do not carry out the high calling that God has on our lives. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So the conclusion, he says, nevertheless, let each of you in particular, so why? So love his wife, why? Because it's a picture of Christ and the church. It's a picture of Christ and the church. Here's your motivation. Here's an added motivation. Because we're a reflection of Christ and the church. Let each one of you in particular so love his wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. Oh, yeah, but you don't know my wife. She can be trying at times. She can be difficult at times. Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives. Oh, you don't know my husband. What a fool he can be at times. The foolish decisions he makes and the consequences we've had to bear because of it. And the complaining she might do against him. Wives, honor, respect, reverence your husbands. Honor, respect, reverence your husband as the bride as the bride of Christ does to his own. There's coming a marriage supper of the Lamb when this mystery shall be shown for what it all is and the glory on that last great day. May God give us grace to patiently live out the precepts of his word to reflect the glory of God until that blessed day. Heavenly Father, we can again uh, bless and praise you for your word, not leaving us to the own, our own dint of reason, Lord God, but giving us light and truth. And Father, there are things that are yet mysterious and strange to us, and there is yet a path of discipleship that is going to be difficult for us. We pray for grace to so live your glory. Now motivate us with these things, Father. Strengthen our hands with them. Help us to do all things to your glory. Help your people uh, to more reflect what you call us to in this relationship, that you might be glorified, that there might be a pattern to future generations to follow, that there might be 
a future generation, Lord God, that will prove more faithful, godly in these matters than we have been in our generation, Lord God, that you would be glorified, oh Lord Jesus, and help us to wait with holy anticipation for the day when you will take us to yourself, where we read that you will receive yourself a bride without spot or blemish or any such thing. We look at the bride now, we look at ourselves, we see spots and blemishes, but we trust your word and promise all these things shall be cleaned up, we shall be a holy bride presented in that day. Prepare us for it and give all the glory is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Brethren, with that, we are dismissed.